0: Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Six weeks ago, we began a journey together. A journey that began for me a year and a half or two ago into the book of Revelation. An enigmatic, puzzling challenging, at times disturbing book. People have asked, why? Why Revelation? One of the reasons is we pastors are at times asked questions, and as we listen to questions and realize that the same question is being asked by different people, it's probably time to pay attention. With the condition being what it is in the world, people ask. What are we to think about the end of time, the second coming of Christ? How are we to approach that? How are we to understand it? It seemed clear that we needed to spend some time on that reality. One cannot do so without going to the book of Revelation. I'll be very honest with you. Revelation is not a book that has enamored me. Over the years of ministry, I've been keenly aware of it, have read it regularly. Been puzzled and bewildered by parts of it. Preached on a few pieces of it. But honestly, largely ignored. But it just seemed, this is a time. And so I began a deeper dive into that book. And as I did so, I found that a couple of questions emerged as, a being, as being questions of great importance. The first question had to do with Jesus. Who is Jesus in the book of Revelation? After all, the book says that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ or from Jesus Christ, depending on how you translate it, but in both cases, having to do with Jesus. Who is this Jesus in the midst of violence and destruction and chaos? Is this the Jesus of the Gospels? But then as the layers begin to peel away, there begin to emerge a beautiful picture of Jesus. As that happened, another question became key and important and one that also began to find its answer in the study of the book, and that is, who is the God of Revelation? Is this the God that sometimes is spoken of as the harsh and angry God, the vindictive God of the Old Testament? Is that who we're dealing with here? Or is this another God? Who is this God? And again, as the layers peeled away, there emerged a picture of a tender God, the tender God of the apocalypse. Now, I have to say it one more time. I said it at the beginning of the series. A key part of this was the magnificent privilege granted us by Robin Vimala Abraham, a dear couple back east, to spend some time on Patmos There is nothing like having a time away from some of the crush and hurry, the hustle and bustle of life to marinate in the juices of Scripture and to be at a place where we believe the curtain was pulled back and where John the Revelator was given a glimpse into what lies ahead. In fact, he was given a glimpse into, in the second part, including today, the content of that seven-sealed scroll, to be in that place was profoundly special. Along the way, there have been surprises, true surprises that have emerged from the text. One of those surprises is what I share with you today. It's a surprise that comes in the, for me anyway, maybe not for others, for me, that comes in the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. THE TWO CHAPTERS IN REVELATION WHERE WE ARE DEALING WITH THE KINGDOM OF GOD WHEN IT IS FINALLY AND FULLY REALIZED, WHEN IT HAS ARRIVED. WE DON'T KNOW MUCH ABOUT THAT. THE SCRIPTURE DOESN'T REVEAL MUCH ABOUT THE SPECIFICS OF THE KINGDOM OF GOD. THERE ARE SOME STATEMENTS. Some think that Paul was referring to it in 1 Corinthians 2 when he makes the statement, I has not seen nor has ear heard nor has entered into the human heart what God has prepared for those who love him. That's a beautiful picture, if indeed that is that to which Paul refers. But even if it is, it doesn't give us specifics. So how are we to think of that? What will it be like What is the destiny that awaits us? To say that heaven cares about our destiny is a beautiful statement, but what is that destiny? A lack of specifics has caused us to do a number of things. One of those things is what I would refer to as a radical discontinuity. A radical discontinuity, meaning that whatever is to come in the kingdom of God is radically different than what we have here and now. There is a radical discontinuity. We find that at times. Maybe you've looked at the artwork of a certain artist who has taken brush and palette and paint in hand and has splashed onto the canvas her conception, his conception of the kingdom of God, and when you have looked at it, you have stepped back and you have said, hmm, if that's it, think I'll just go to Texas. <laughs> Radical discontinuity. Or maybe you have heard that heaven is going to be floating around on a cloud, strumming a harp for all the years of eternity. <laughs> About 10 minutes after that, I'm thinking, I think I went to the other place. I thought I'm in the wrong place. Radical discontinuity. Nothing like what we had thought, lived, hoped for, because we don't know. But then some have said, no, 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 that's not the approach I'll take. A second approach is a romantic continuity. A romantic continuity. I love life here and I love what life here offers and what I do here. And so surely that's what it's going to be like. You pick this up in the popular culture. You pick this up in music, country music, otherwise. I mean, this romantic continuity is when I get there, I'm going to take my dog, my rifle, I'm going to go shoot me an eight-point buck, bring it back, a barbecue, pop open a brewski. And, and I'm thinking, okay, wait a second. Where, where is that in the text? I don't find anything like that here. A romantic continuity. Be just like you. My mother, in her high school autograph book, had a friend who wrote to her, Betty Jo. That's my mother's name. My dad's name was Bobby Lee. My brother's name is Billy Joe Jim Bob. No, not not. <laughs> no. I just made that up. Um, Betty Jo. When you get to heaven and have nothing to do, just dig a hole and pull me through. (laughs) Romantic continuity. You can sneak me in just like you've sneaked me in other places. That's what the kingdom is going to be like. And yet, when we look at Scripture, we don't find that either. So how are we to think about the coming kingdom of God, about human destiny. Here's what I want to suggest to you that the book of Revelation presents us with. It presents us with a realistic continuity. A realistic continuity. In other words... There is realistically a connection between who we are and what we are and what we do and how we were designed and how we live here and what is to come. A realistic continuity. And that was the surprise to me, one of them in the book of Revelation. So I remind you, before we turn to the text, of a couple of things. First thing I remind you of is this. Remember, It's a symbolic book. It's highly symbolic. Many symbols. Sometimes we try to be too specific and too detailed in our interpretations of the symbols. One of the things we've said along the way, remember, is simply that, for example, in Revelation, numbers may often have much more to do with theology than they do to do with math, have to do with math. In the passage we'll read today, we will see many symbols, many elements, many beautiful sights, the structure of a city that is unlike any other, the perfect proportions. Maybe as we read that, we may also need to remind ourselves, could it be that these descriptions have more to do with theology than they do have to do with architecture? So bear that in mind. And finally, Revelation 21, we have to ask ourselves the question is this another example of what we've seen before in Revelation? That experience of John hearing one thing, seeing another, noticing they're different, but then discovering that they're the same. We've seen that already three times just in the passages we've considered. We saw it in chapter 1. I heard a voice like a trumpet. When he turned to see, he saw a figure, the Christ figure standing, a voice and a figure, different but the same. Chapter 5, weeping because no one had been found worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. And a voice cries out, don't weep, John, the lion of the tribe of Judah. will do it. He turns to look, and what does he see? A wounded lamb. Different, but the same. Or what about that glimpse he has given of God's redeemed? He hears the number, 144,000. He turns to look. He sees a numberless multitude. Different, but the same. Maybe this is a passage where the same thing happens because John will hear about the bride of the lamb, but when he sees it, He sees the holy city different, the same? Is it God's way of saying, my city is wherever my bride is? Is it God's way of saying to us, his beloved, as though one human beloved was speaking to the other saying, sweetheart, home to me is where you are. That's all. Could that be happening here? Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He hears that. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. That's what he sees. Coming down out of heaven from God, it shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long, a perfect cube. The only other place we see that in the Old Testament Scripture is the holy place of the temple, the very dwelling place of God. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundation of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Spectacular description. Perfect proportions. Transparent. Pure. Filled with light with beauty, with joy, many different pieces that we could examine, trying to tease out of it, what is this saying about God and his government and God's city and God's people? But all that will have to wait for another time because of one other reality, one other, to me, surprise. Because, you see, if you read Scripture, you remember the story of Genesis that back when God created humanity, we started in a garden. Edenic in its beauty, pure. Adam, Eve placed in the garden, given that garden as their gift, the creation of God. And then came the fall, and then came this thing we call the cosmic conflict where the the world is filled with corruption and disorder and chaos and death and evil and pain and suffering. All of that happens. And now, yet, at the end of the book, we come to the last two chapters describing the fact that God is creating a new heaven and a new earth, and we say, finally, we are back to where we began, except. We're not, because we began in a garden, but now, John says, we will end in a city, a city. That's surprising to me, a city. Why not the garden, pure and clean and undefiled? Why a city? Because after all, if you read this book, you will discover that time and time and time again, cities are not good for the people of God. Cities cause them trouble, persecute them, destroy them, seduce them. That's the nature of cities over and again in this volume. It starts very near to the beginning. We could make a list of the cities, Babel, Sodom, Gomorrah, we could continue on to the cities of Egypt, Pishon and Ramesses, where the people of God were kept as slaves, and the story just continues. Nineveh, Tyre, Edom. And then how could we forget that city whose presence is very clear in the book of Revelation as well as other places, the city of Babylon, over and over again in the biblical account, cities are not good for the people of God. All kinds of difficulties and challenges. So why is it that when we read the text, we start in a garden and we end in a city? Well, we have to travel back to the Garden of Eden and listen in on God as he's speaking to these people. He has designed these creations called humans, designed in the image of God, who are woven into the warp and woof of God's person. A couple of things are said to these human beings. One is that when it comes to this creation, they are to subdue it, and they are to exercise dominion over it, two statements that have been among the most misunderstood statements in Scripture because throughout time and maybe no place more clearly than in the cities, this has been claimed even by people who claim faith in Jesus. We own it. It's ours. We'll treat it as we wish to treat it. We'll thrash it and we'll trash it if it benefits us. That was never the intent that God had. What God was saying is, I am making you stewards over my creation. Nurture it, care for it, craft it. Use the creativity I have woven into the human genome to make out of it the most magnificent creations that you can. This is yours. Use what I have given you to make things even greater. And then came the fall. Two things happen. First thing that happens is the human personality, the human character, the human being is now damaged, tarnished, twisted, off-center. But the other thing that happens is the image of God is not fully, completely removed. God's image is still there. The creativity, the ability to think and dream and plan and build still very much there but when these things come together we end up with creativity in ways that are astonishing and in ways that are deadly because the truth is have you noticed it is also in the cities that we see many of the most remarkable human achievements it is in the cities that we see art and architecture and commerce and business and science and technology and medicine, construction, education. It has some of the greatest gifts of humanity as well. It's that flawed nature with that continued gift that God has bestowed. Listen to what New Testament scholar, British New Testament scholar, Richard bockham writes about this. He writes, in the beginning, God had planted a garden for humanity to live in. In the end, he will give them a city in the new jerusalem the blessings of paradise will be restored but the new jerusalem is more than paradise regained as a city it fulfills humanity's desire to build out of nature a human place of culture and community true it is given by god and so comes down from heaven but this does not mean humanity makes no contribution to it it consummates human history and culture insofar as these have been dedicated to god while excluding the distortions of history and culture into opposition to God that Babylon represents. It comes from God in the sense that all good comes from God and all that is humanly good is best when acknowledged to come from God. But the city that both includes paradise unspoiled and is adorned with the beauty of paradise points to that harmony of nature and human culture to which ancient cities once aspired but which modern cities have increasingly betrayed. Could it be that humanity transformed by the coming of Christ has a reset button that restores that creativity, that image of God within us that will then pick up where God intended us to go to begin with, and now we'll begin to manifest in a perfect, pristine world What might have been true all the way back then. In fact, you see right here in this passage, we read a couple of very curious statements. Because remember, this is the city of God. It says the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor to it. Their riches, their wealth, their their, their splendor, their gifts. Right after that, another verse. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Another reference to the fact that there is something in the human person that will also contribute to what God has done. Now, don't get twitchy because it's almost as though John understood that because as soon as he says that, you know what he says next? He says, now, nothing impure will come in. So just to be clear, not talking about anything that is impure, deceitful, sinful. No, but humanity, recreated in the image of God. Sigva God turns the city, the Bible's embodiment of rebellion and futility, into a symbol of reconciliation, community, and permanence. Nothing captures this better than the announcement that the new Jerusalem is the bride, the wife of the land. Communion vies with community as the best way to describe the new existence. Aspiration exceeds reality for all the cities in history except one, the city not built on and by force. In this city, culture, commerce, and celebration do not cease. Whether harp is playing on their harps, the harps even described as the harps of God, or light, or trade, in the negation called Babylon, the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard no more. But precisely it is the voice of bridegroom and bride that will be heard at journey's end in the city made ready as a bride beautified for her husband." When John proceeds to describe the various features of the city in terms that are strange even for symbolic language, these impressions are confirmed and deepened. Architecture is now a vehicle for theology. Aesthetics blends with ethics. And the transparent politics of heaven is exported to earth. Could it be? It's curious that when you read Scripture... Of all the cities where things went bad, there is one city, one city that's the high point of the entire earth, the city of Jerusalem. No matter how high any other city might be, none exceeds Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem. When you leave Jerusalem, you always go down to anything else. Jerusalem is the epitome. But what is almost stunning is that Jerusalem is not in Revelation. The new Jerusalem is in Revelation. God is doing a new thing in this place. Too literal? Too specific? Is that a bridge too far? Consider this one sentence from the book Great Controversy. As fear of making the future inheritance A fear of making the future inheritance seem too material. In other words, these kinds of fears, a fear of making the future inheritance seem too material has led many to spiritualize away the very truths which lead us to look upon it as our home. In other words, being fearful that, no, it's just all spiritual, has caused us, she says, to have a conception of it which makes it not feel like home very curious statement when I was a college student Floyd Brzee was our senior pastor I still remember I don't remember the sermon but I remember with clarity the statement he made it has stayed with me over all the years he told us you were designed for heaven you will never function fully till you get there you were designed for heaven. You will never function fully until t- you get there. You were designed for it. That design has not totally been erased, but it has been deeply flawed. But now when we arrive in that new heaven and new earth, we will function fully. I sit in my office. I look at the books. I have always had a thirst to know, to learn, to grow. I look. I say, I want to read every one of these books. Problem is, I buy them faster than I can read them. <laughs> I remember Ivan and my dear colleague. Somebody walked into his office, saw all those books. Said, "Have you read all these books?" Ivan said, "The answer that I'd like to adopt." He just said, "I've read some of them twice." Well, what a great way to not answer the question and still look good. <laughs> I've read some of them twice. A thirst to know, to understand, what if in the kingdom of God to come, God were to say to me, Randy, that thirst to know, to learn, to understand, to grow, I put that within you. It was defaced and affected by the fall, and you were limited in what you could learn and know and understand, but now you've got eternity before you. Have at it. What if that's what it looks like? What if God is like a parent A parent who looks at his children and her children and just glories in what they do. I love to celebrate what my kids have done. I think I I did that. I mean, Anita had something to do with it, but I did that. (laughs) And just take joy in that. What if that's God? What if that's God bringing those who follow the Lamb home, placing them in that city, and then God stepping back as the creativity, the vision, the energy, what he has given them is given free reign. And God just says, my, 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 look at what my kids are doing. Ah, I take great pleasure in them. What if that's God? Listen, in fact, to the words again, back to great controversy. Here's what it says. There, meaning in the kingdom of God, there the redeemed shall know even as they also are known. Do you worry whether or not you will know one another? Let that guide you. There the redeemed shall know even as also they are known. The loves and sympathies which God himself has planted in the soul shall find their truest and sweetest exercise. Their immortal minds will contemplate with never-failing delight the wonders of creative power, the mysteries of redeeming love. There is no cruel, deceiving foe to attempt to forgetfulness of God. In other words, the mudslinger's done. Every faculty will be developed. Every capacity increased. Students, med, dent, PT, The acquirement of knowledge will not weary the mind or exhaust the energies. There the grandest enterprises may be carried forward, the loftiest aspirations reached, the highest ambitions realized, and still there will arise new heights to surmount, new wonders to admire, new truths to comprehend, fresh objects to call forth the powers of mind and soul and body. All of the treasures of the universe will be open to the study of God's redeemed and the years of eternity. As they roll. We'll bring richer and still more glorious revelations of God and of Christ. As knowledge is progressive, so will love, reverence, and happiness increase. The more humans learn of God, the greater will be their admiration of his character. As Jesus opens before them the riches of redemption and the amazing achievements in the great controversy with Satan, the hearts of the redeemed will... The ransom will thrill with more fervent devotion and with more rapturous joy they sweep the harps of gold and 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands of voices unite to swell the mighty chorus of praise. The great controversy has ended. Sin and sinners are no more. The entire universe is clean one pulse of harmony and gladness beats through the vast creation. From him who created all flow life and light and gladness throughout the realms of illimitable space. From the minutest atom to the greatest world, all things, animate and inanimate, in their unshadowed beauty and perfect joy, declare that God is love. My, 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 what a God we serve. A God who says, I had a plan, and that plan was that you would have this planet to make anything you could imagine from. Sin corrupted that plan, though it didn't completely abolish it. We see what happens. We're going back to that, and we're going to incorporate some of what you bring to it already. That's my surprise. We begin in a garden. We end in a city. So we come to the end of our study. And I've been wondering what possibly could be the best way to summarize what Revelation is all about. What could possibly, could there be maybe one sentence, one statement, one phrase that would capture the full story that John tells us in this enigmatic but profoundly important book. And I found it. It's a statement not that I made, but from a sermon of 35, 40 years ago. It was a sermon preached by that great Adventist prince of pulpiteers, Henry Wright. I didn't hear him preach it, but Dr. Peter Landless, sitting down here last week, G.C. Minute Health Ministries Department Director of Physician, shared it with me. All these years later, he remembered it. And I would suggest to you this is the statement that captures the book. Henry Wright said, the handkerchief of revelation will wipe away the tears of Genesis. The handkerchief of Revelation will wipe away the tears of Genesis. (laughs) Why should it then be any surprise that when John comes to the end of his book, he writes these words with the view in mind that the one who holds that handkerchief is the tender God of the apocalypse. He writes these words. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.